1: Tonight on The Readout.
2: And the American people know, we
3: know, that Jim Jordan is a winner.
1: No person
2: having received a majority of the whole number of votes cast by surname, a speaker
4: has not been elected.
1: Wah, wah. Jim Jordan's MAGA dreams of holding the speaker's gavel come up short. And tonight the House is still without a speaker. This kind of incompetence would never have happened in Nancy Pelosi's Democratic caucus. And tonight, the speaker Emerita joins me live. Plus, horrific new bloodshed in Gaza as hundreds of people are killed in a powerful explosion at a Gaza City hospital. But we begin tonight with an unprecedented just juxtaposition of crises an intensifying Israel Hamas war with President Biden en route to the region and with Republicans in the House of Representatives still trying to elect a speaker after two weeks without one. We're also just one month from another potential government shutdown. And the chaos on Capitol Hill has stalled any attempt at congressional funding for the Middle East or Ukraine or anything else the federal government might want to deal with while Republicans try to get their act together. Earlier today, Jim Jordan fell short of the 217 votes he needed on his first vote, getting just 200, which is pretty remarkable, considering that while Republicans are still struggling to get the MAGA insurrectionist Jordan installed as Speaker, the Justice Department is appealing the sentences of some of the violent right-wing MAGA militia members who planned and carried out the attack on our Capitol on January 6, 2021, including former Proud Boys chairman Enrique Tarrio who received the longest sentence for his role, 22 years. Prosecutors had requested a 33-year sentence for Tario. More than 1,100 people have faced criminal charges for the attack on the Capitol or efforts to overthrow the election leading up to January 6th, including Donald Trump himself. So there is every reason that Congressman Jim Jordan should receive the same amount of scrutiny. The final report from the January 6th committee states unequivocally Representative Jordan was a significant player in President Trump's efforts. The list of his transgressions is exhaustive. He led a conference call with Donald Trump and other members of Congress about delaying the electoral vote proceedings. And the day before the attack, Jordan texted White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows about how Vice President Mike Pence could reject electoral votes. Jordan also spoke with Trump by phone at least twice on January 6th, but has never given a straight answer about it.
2: Did you talk to the former president that day?
5: I've talked to the former president umpteen times, thousands. I mean, I may not. I mean, times, on January 6, Countless, 6th. countless times. I continue to talk to the president. No, no, since no I on office. January
6: 6th, Congressman. Yes. On January 6th, did you speak with him before, during, or after the Capitol was attacked?
5: Uh, I'd have to go. I, 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 I spoke with him that day after, I think after. I don't know if I spoke with him in the morning or not. I I just don't know. Uh, I talked to him that day. My understanding is, from my memory, I talked to him
1: after the attack happened and we were moved to the the chamber. I may have talked to him before. I don't know. You know, after something. Since then, he's also refused to say whether during any of those conversations he bothered to ask for help for the Capitol. Despite the threat to members of Congress, their staffs, including his, to the vice president and to one of the mobs deliberately sought targets. Then, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Where are you, Nancy? We're looking for you.
7: She's in jail. Nancy. Nancy. Oh,
1: Nancy. Nancy. Where are you, Nancy? And as the mob laid siege to the Capitol, footage shows frantic staffers fleeing Republican leader Kevin McCarthy's office. It wasn't just leadership who were fearful that day. Apparently, Jim Jordan was, too. Congresswoman Liz Cheney confirmed reports that she smacked down his offer for help during the attack and told him, quote, get away from me. You blanking did this. In the days following January 6th, Jim Jordan spoke with White House staff about presidential pardons for members of Congress and later refused to comply with subpoenas from the House's January 6th committee. But Republicans have dismissed questions over his very well-documented role on January 6th, as they marched straight ahead, trying to elect him Speaker of the House. And I'd like you to consider that. Whatever happens going forward, 200 Republicans chose to vote for somebody who was at some level involved in orchestrating a coup, a coup that involved attacking the very chamber they sit in, with the goal of harming them and their fellow members of Congress, It is historically notable that Republicans are choosing to even try to make that person Speaker of the House of Representatives and to put him second in line to the presidency. I'd say it's almost hard to believe, except this is the MAGA Republican Party. The House will pick up again tomorrow morning at 11 a.m. with another effort to pick a Speaker. Joining me now is Sahil Kapoor, NBC News senior national political reporter and Denver Riggleman, a former Republican congressman from Virginia who is now an independent. Sahil, I do want to start with you first. Um, First of all, what is the status of the uh, attempts to corral votes for Jim Jordan? Let's start there.
6: It's a bit of a mess right now, Joy. Jim Jordan's team did not expect there to be 20 defections. They certainly did not expect to be, you know, to de- be dealing with 20 defections from such a cross-section of the Republican conference. You got appropriators in there. You got swing district members in there. You have conservatives who uh, are generally known as team players with the Republican Party who opposed him. So Jordan had some meetings with, uh, you know, leadership allies. He said he's going to continue working members, talking to them. Uh, they're expected to have another vote tomorrow at 11 a.m., a. Second ballot, and that's going to be a crucial inflection point. Joy, he's going to have to show that he can make progress here, that he can improve his vote count rather than potentially lose more votes, which is also a possibility that some members think, uh, you know, is, is in the cards. Or his speakership bid could collapse very quickly. It's not over yet. There is no, you know, backup plan if Jim Jordan doesn't get it, and the House Republicans are in a very, very perilous situation at this time.
1: And your reporting, Sahil, is that Democrats are actually setting up and poised to take full advantage if somehow Jim Jordan gets the votes. Tell us about that.
6: Yeah, they absolutely are. Democrats are already, you know, uh, crafting a a message and a strategy to tie the entire Republican Party to Jim Jordan, to argue that there are no moderates left in the House Republican Conference, that they're all beholden to an extremist, uh, to radicals. They're gonna tie uh, Republicans to Jordan, tie him to Trump. They're bringing up the January 6th insurrection, you know, which is not, Jordan was one of more than 140 Republicans who voted to block the certification of some uh, of uh, Joe Biden's electors, but it was more than that. You know, he was uh, involved in some of the conversations with, with uh, former President Trump at the time, he kind of spoke out at rallies and took that message that this uh, election was stolen out on the road, which of course we know to be a lie. So Democrats do see a political opportunity there if Jordan is speaker to try to, you know, tie every Republican to his brand of politics. It's unclear at this moment whether he will get there. Um, And if he doesn't, then there are already conversations happening, including among Democrats, as to whether there should be some kind of caretaker speaker. Uh, Someone like Patrick McHenry is, uh, you know, a a person who Democrats respect. The minority leader, Hakeem Jeffrey, said all options are on the table when it comes to temporarily or permanently finding a bipartisan path to to a a speaker. Unlikely at the moment, Joy, but uh, that option could come into play as things get desperate, the government shuts down in one month from today, if there's mm-hmm. no action and there's a ground of support for some action to, to help Israel as it deals with that horrific attack from Hamas.
1: Uh, Denver, let me bring you in here. I just want to play. I want to play Jim Jordan and not from like months ago or a year ago when maybe he still had hurt feelings about the results of the election. But literally uh, this morning, here he is not willing to say the election wasn't stolen. Why would you say to Ken Buck that the election was stolen in 2020, that was not stolen?
6: Do you still think you will
1: Excuse me. watch out, Excuse me. Denver, you were part—you were an investigator on the January 6th committee. That man, Liz Cheney, blames— in large part, for what happened. She said he knew what was coming, didn't warn his colleagues or even his own staff, presumably, um, and yet he had to run with everyone else. What do you make of the fact that this man, who is an insurrectionist, or at least insurrection curious, is the person 200 Republicans think should be the speaker? He still won't say the election was legitimate.
2: You know, I think, um, you know, watching that, Joy, you know, sometimes I get pretty blunt, Uh, But it almost seems like he's a remora fish that doesn't want to piss off his great white shark, which is Trump. I mean, the fact is, is that I saw the evidence. Liz is correct. I saw that I was the first one to see the text message. If you think about it, uh, Joy, I was the first one to see it besides Jim and besides Mark Meadows. And when I saw that text message, I realized pretty quickly where it came from. I think a lot of people need to realize the fact that Jim Jordan was getting his messaging from QAnon believers, from some of the craziest individuals. So let's just put aside for a second, even if we don't call it an insurrection, do we want somebody leading a conference that actually believes in the craziest things, that weaponizes insanity or monetizes insanity or, or protects somebody like Donald Trump, who was well behind, who we know was behind instigating this type of ridiculous on January 6th? And, I, you know, I'm not even, I know it's unprecedented what happened, Um, with the speaker vote and what happened with McCarthy, but I don't think it's a shock. I don't think it's a surprise. I think you talked about MAGA Republicans. You know, I've tried to keep away from saying that at times. But now we're looking at 200 of my, some of my former colleagues, some who voted to actually not object to the electors that were voting for Jim Jordan because they're afraid. I think we have a cowards caucus now. I don't mm. I don't think there's anybody there who's, who, who can rise up against their base and actually push back on how bad January 6th was. And the fact is, I saw the data. I do have an inside track on what happened, and I think it's egregious. I think it's something we have to actually address right now, that we can't have the unserious and those who think that what happened on January 6th was just some kind of tourist visit actually voting for what's happening in this country. And I, I just think people who believe in fantasy should be voting on policy.
1: And uh, Denver, let me ask you this, because, you know, one of the roles that that Speaker Pelosi played on January 6th. She was frantically calling the vice president, uh, ch- checking as to his safety. Um, she had to scramble to shore up security in the Capitol and do what she could. The president wasn't helping. You, as somebody who investigated this crime against our country, what do you make of the idea that Jim Jordan could be the person responsible for the security of the Capitol? When, as you said, he gets his information from Trump and QAnon and doesn't believe the election was legitimate. That person would then be in charge of the safety of all 435 members of Congress. Is that something that you can even wrap your mind around?
2: It's terrifying to the sane and it's terrifying to the rational. How could you have somebody like the Speaker of the House who voted to object to the electors. And if you think about what does that vote mean, Joy, it means it's somebody who believed that either Italian satellites switched the vote, or they were burning ballots in white vans, or there was a broken algorithm, or the NSA was involved, or the CIA was involved, or they were routing it to Chinese servers, or we had quantum financial system watermark ballots, which Jenny Thomas texted in one of her first texts to Mark Meadows. You have to believe that tripe, that ridiculousness, in order to go up there on the floor of Congress and vote against the electors on January 6th, the night after that violence. And to me, it's mind boggling. It's almost as if you know, <laughs> I don't want to get crazy here, but the, it's it's almost as if ignorance has been weaponized on a level that's hard for us to stop. And when you have 200 of some of my former colleagues voting this way again, for somebody like Jim Jordan, who can't even say the election was stolen, you played that clip today, because he's afraid to piss off the base, or he's afraid to make little Trump mad in, in, Ma, in Magoland over there in Mar-a-Lago. I, I just got a feeling right now that there's got to be some kind of some kind of push towards rationality and sanity. And and. I think right now, somebody like a McHenry or somebody like that is, is sort of a consensus pick is the way to go.
1: Uh, let me just put up a list of the last uh, Republican five speakers. Of course, Kevin McCarthy lasted, you know, not too long. Paul Ryan, John Boehner, who was sort of the last sort of normie uh, Republican speakers. And, you know, of course, Newt Gingrich, who blew up Congress um, because that was his role. Um, and then Dennis Hastert sticks out. And we know the scandal um, of sex abuse crimes and hush money that took him down. And yet, here is Elise Stefanik, who is the conference chair of the Republican Party, Sahil, talking about Jim Jordan today.
2: Whether on the wrestling mat or in the committee room, Jim Jordan is strategic, scrappy, tough, and principled.
1: Sahil, we know that Jim Jordan's other scandal is the allegation that he turned a blind eye to sex sex abuse when he was an assistant coach in Ohio. Is the Republican conference, are they having any conversations about even the way they publicly present his candidacy? Because if that's the sales pitch and she got laughs by saying that internally, is there anyone coordinating this effort other than Sean Hannity?
6: Yeah, Joy, I was in the chamber at the time, and I heard the shouts and ooze from the Democratic side of the aisle when Elise Stefanik brought up Jim Jordan's wrestling past. Yes, this is an issue that Jordan's critics on the Democratic side have pointed out, but I got to tell you, it's not really registering on the Republican side. Um, it's not an issue for Jordan's uh, opponents. None of them have really cited that as a basis for, for uh, you know voting against him. Jordan has denied the allegations. And I do want to mention, you, know, you guys were talking about the Republicans and the divisions within the party. There's all this talk about a Republican civil war. The war is over. The MAGA forces have won. We've seen the the critics of Donald Trump and the MAGA movement slowly banished from the party, slowly being excommunicated and leaving. They're right now negotiating the terms of the surrender. And what we saw today is 20 members saying they're not going to do an unconditional surrender. They're not just going to roll over after they feel their side was badly mistreated, Joy.
1: Uh, Sahil Kapoor and former Congressman Denver Riggleman, uh, what, what a time to be alive. Thank you both very much. And stay tuned to hear Speaker Emerita Nancy Pelosi's thoughts on the Republican speaker mess when she joins me here on set later in the show. But up first, as President Biden begins his trip to Israel, a powerful explosion hits a Gaza hospital today, killing hundreds of people. The readout continues after this. Caesar's
0: Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesar's rewards.
1: Today, the death toll rose significantly in a horrific attack in Gaza. The Palestinian Health Ministry said 200 to 300 people were killed in what it called a targeted bombing of the Al-Ahi Baptist Hospital. Doctors Without Borders said the hospital was hosting displaced Gazans and treating injured patients when the bombing occurred. The Israeli military denied that the hospital was one of its targets. This comes as President Biden is heading to Israel in a show of solidarity as its military prepares a ground offensive against Hamas. The trip will put the president in the middle of an active war zone for the second time this year. Biden, however, is no longer scheduled to travel to Jordan on Wednesday after he visits Israel. After consulting with King Abdullah of Jordan and in light of the days of mourning announced by President Abbas of the Palestinian Authority, President Biden will postpone the summit with these two leaders and President Sisi of Egypt. A Jordanian official told NBC News that all parties agreed to the cancellation, saying that the summit would not achieve any goals under the current circumstances. Let's bring in NBC News Chief Foreign Correspondent Richard Engel, who is near the Israeli-Gaza border. Um, Richard, uh, thank you for being here. So we know that there is a sort of both sides pointing the finger at one another in terms of this horrific bombing of a hospital in Gaza. Uh, Raf Sanchez was on earlier, uh, our correspondent, who was saying that Hamas does not have the kind of munitions that could do this kind of damage. Um, what do we know, and only the Israeli military does, what do we know about the source of that bombing?
5: Well, the two sides are pointing, uh, blaming each other. So you have the Israelis saying that this was a uh, a rocket that misfired, that it was a rocket fired by the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which is a rival group in Gaza. And they've released some uh, footage showing what looks like a rocket that appears to take an unusual turn and then crash somewhere in the Gaza strip and uh, it doesn't have to be a very large rocket to cause a, a large number of casualties when people are packed on top of each other as they uh, as they apparently were at this hospital not inside the hospital itself but in the in the courtyard in the parking area uh, all around the hospital people are gathering at at hospitals they're gathering at mosques they're gathering at UN schools they're gathering at any place where they believe that uh, the Israelis won't strike. So it is possible that if a, a rocket misfired and exploded in such a, a crowded area, that it could cause a, a large number of casualties. The Palestinians are talking about 500 dead. Uh, some are, Initially, they talked about two or 300. Later, up that number to 500. Uh, it is unlikely that a, a, a rocket, uh, a crude rocket fired by a Palestinian group could cause that number of casualties. But that number could also be exaggerated. It, it could be that uh, a smaller number of of, of people were, were killed, and that it is possible that it was caused by by a misfire of a rocket. Uh, these rockets are not particularly sophisticated; a lot of them are homemade, but. Palestinians don't, don't believe that. They say that this was an Israeli airstrike. And if you're in Gaza, that is also a logical conclusion because most of what you're seeing around you are Israeli airstrikes uh, targeting apartment buildings, targeting uh, tunnels, targeting Hamas locations. So when you're on the ground, something explodes. Uh, it, it is uh, natural that you would assume that it was fired by the Israelis. Uh, the Israeli military also says that it has intercepts uh, of the militant's talking about this. So Israel is trying to build a case, and it says it will present its evidence uh, to to President Biden when he comes, and I'm sure they will be releasing it to the public as well, which they've already begun to do.
1: NBC's Richard Engel, thank you. Joining me now is Nicholas Kristof, columnist for The New York Times. Uh, Nicholas, thank you so much for being here. Um, We know that this uh, attack on the hospital has touched off protests and outrage all around the world and in the region. Queen Rania of Jordan, who is herself Palestinian, um, issued a statement condemning it. Um, And despite what the uh, Israeli government is saying, you know, including the government of Egypt and and others, are very clear in their statements that they believe it was an Israeli attack. But whatever the source of it was, what does this do uh, to this already— horrific and caustic situation.
4: Well, you're right that, um, you know, I certainly don't know who was behind that rocket. Um, But we do know that Hamas has, you know, no credibility on such things, uh, nor uh, Islamic jihad. But Israel also has lost a great deal of credibility in the past when, uh, you know, last year, a Palestinian-American journalist, Shireen Abu Akleh, was Killed by Israeli soldiers. And, uh, you know, initially they were denying it. So both sides have, you know, rather impaired credibility on this thing. And as you suggest, you know, the two things we know are that there are a lot of dead civilians, a real tragedy. And also that this is inflaming the uh, anti American sentiment uh, and the sympathy for the people of Gaza around the region. King Abdullah um, has, it sure looks as if he has canceled. Uh, President Biden's visit. Um, This will increase the pressure uh, on uh, Hezbollah to uh, get involved in the northern border of Israel. It'll increase the pressure in Egypt, the instability in Jordan, and so on. It's uh, just a tragedy all around.
1: Yeah. And let me just really quickly play. uh, Ralph Sanchez is uh, reporting on this matter. Here he is talking earlier with uh, Nicole Wallace.
6: This kind of death toll is not what you normally associate with Palestinian rockets. These rockets are dangerous. They are deadly. They do not tend to kill hundreds of people in a single strike in the way that Israeli high explosives, especially these bunker buster bombs that are used to target these Hamas tunnels under Gaza City do have the potential to kill hundreds of people. And we should say, finally, that there are instances in the past where the Israeli military has said things in the immediate aftermath of an incident that have turned out not to be true in the long run.
1: As as you sort of reiterated, but President Biden is going to be in the region now. The fact that he now is not going to be meeting with the Jordanians, the Egyptians, etc., what can he accomplish, and what do you think that his trip now, the sort of purpose of it, will be?
4: So I think it complicates the trip. Um, you know, certainly in the region, and you know, there, there's been this perception that President Biden uh, was uh, failing to call for restraint on the part of Israel in its uh, assault on Gaza, and that there should have been a little more even-handedness from the administration. now to its credit, President Biden has to some degree walked that back. He has uh, suggested to Israel that it would be a real mistake to occupy Gaza once more. And you have the sense other administration officials likewise talking about obeying the laws of war and so on. But those initial uh, uh, statements uh, without calling for restraint, I think left a you know a deep sense uh, in the region and in many other countries that the United States um, you know bears some of the responsibility for whatever uh, happens in Gaza and going to um, just Israel and not to Jordan, for example. I think you know I think that tends to accentuate yeah. that uh, that image problem.
1: Let's talk about what's happening inside the United States, where the conversation has not uh, been measured uh, in some instances, including some uh, people with real governmental responsibility. Let me play for you uh, Lindsey Graham, Jesse Waters, and Ron DeSantis.
2: I don't think we can have a Palestinian state at this point. I've had it with the Palestinians. I've given up on the Palestinians. If I was in Israel, I wouldn't be talking about a Palestinian state. And I don't like how people tried to differentiate between the Palestinians and Hamas. To me, I see people with guns. That's Hamas. The people without the guns are the Palestinians. They believe the same thing. We're in
5: a religious war here. I am with Israel. Do whatever the hell you have to do to defend yourself.
1: Level the place.
0: If you look at how they behave, not all of them are Hamas, but they are all anti-Semitic
1: just grouping all Palestinians together, they're all Hamas, level the place. We're in a religious war. Um, We just had a six-year-old boy stabbed 26 times and his mother stabbed and he's dead. The mom is in the hospital. This rhetoric inside the United States, I wonder how that impacts what's happening overseas.
4: I mean, I think that kind of rhetoric uh, certainly inflames the kind of Islamophobia that leads somebody to stab a six-year-old boy Uh, You know, more than 20 times. And it also just, it just, you know, look at somebody who's covered the tragedy on both sides of that border, it just breaks my heart. And the degree of suffering in southern Israel, that was real, that was an outrage, that was terrorism. On the other hand, there are, you know, the idea of equating Hamas and uh, saying that suggesting every Gazan is to blame somehow. Half the population of Gaza is under eighteen. These are kids who were dying. How are these kids to be held responsible and to be killed for what Hamas, which which frankly oppresses Gaza, does you know, if your when your moral compass is attuned to the suffering only in Israel or only in Gaza, then you've got a broken moral compass.
1: Yeah. And Lindsey Graham, uh, flatten the place means two million people would be dead. And I'm not sure that that's a responsible thing for a federal official to say. But he said it. Uh, Nicholas Kristof, thank you so much. I really appreciate you being here. Up next, Cheers. uh, Up next, Speaker Emerita Nancy Pelosi joins me with her take on the latest antics of the Chaos Caucus on Capitol Hill. We'll be right back.
7: We're trying to figure out how we can get this job done today. We talked to Mitch about it earlier. Uh, He's not in the room right now, but he was with us earlier uh, and said, you know, we want to expedite this, and hopefully they could confine it to just one complaint, Arizona, and then we could vote, and and that would be, you know, then just move forward with the rest of the state. The overriding wish is to do it at the Capitol. What we are being told very directly is It's going to take days for the Capitol to be okay again.
1: During the January 6th insurrection, as the violent mob stormed and ransacked the Capitol, it was then Speaker Nancy Pelosi who took charge, making calls to the vice president and other leaders to bring in the National Guard and quell the riot. You know, what the president should have been doing. Fast forward to today, and the House Republican conference is now in the process of possibly elevating a congressman to the speakership who Liz Cheney herself said partially bears responsibility for what happened that day. Extraordinary. Joining me now is House Speaker Emerita Nancy Pelosi. Speaker Emerita Pelosi, thank you so much for being here. It's always a pleasure.
7: A pleasure. When I
1: go back and I watch that footage of you that day, it is a reminder that the speaker is second in line to the presidency. Mm -hmm. And when you had a president who was refusing to be president— And you had a vice president who was hiding and fearing for his life. It was the speaker who had to take charge. And you did that. The idea that the person in that position, if something catastrophic were to happen to the Capitol again, would be an insurrectionist. Somebody was on the side of
7: the insurrectionist. I can't wrap my mind around it fully. (laughs) And I wonder what you make of it. Well, first, let me say, Chuck Schumer, we were there together. Yes. Uh, together, calling the president, asking him, really beseeching him to send the National Guard, talking to the secretary of defense and asking him and the secretary of the army, McCarthy was his name, to send and they, and they just weren't doing it. And then they lie about it. Well, that's yeah. their thing. And uh, again, and Mitch McConnell was even with with us on taking it back to the Capitol, right. and taking it back to the Capitol. So these, uh, these House Republicans were just—they didn't have any interest in the peaceful transfer of power. They were in denial about the election. And for all the horror of that day, the violence, the desecration of the capital, this temple of democracy in the world, the violation of our Constitution— to yeah. have that day being the acceptance of the uh, Electoral College vote. The whole thing, the assault on our democracy, after we went back to the Capitol, took the vote, yeah. overwhelmingly the Republicans voted against accepting the results of the Electoral College. Yeah, And this person that they're putting forth to be Speaker of the House, it's just appalling.
1: Today, he was asked, do you accept the results of the election? He wouldn't answer that question today. I've walked through that Capitol with you, Mm -hmm. and I can see how much you revere that building, how much you look around and feel the awe of it and the awe of your position. There's nothing in that in this person. Liz Cheney literally— called him out by name as somebody who, in her view, was involved in the plot to overturn the election. Have any Republicans come to you privately and said, we understand, Ken Buck has said it publicly, we cannot elevate somebody who does not accept the results of the election and who was part of the insurrection. Mm -hmm. He said he can't do it. Have any Republicans come to you privately and said, this cannot happen and we won't let it happen?
7: No, But, but the fact is, is that, uh, Mr. Jordan and his friends do a real disservice to their members on the Republican side to call upon them once, maybe more, we'll see tomorrow, to vote for such a person for speaker. They're going to have to answer to their conscience, uh, to their children, to their own legacy— doing something so disreputable. Now, for some of them, it's a good match. Yeah. Some of them are just right in there with them. But for some of them, you could just see this has to be very painful for them. Uh, the uh, We're rather thinking, we don't agonize, we organize. Mm-hmm. We have to get going for the next election. Just think of how recent it was when uh, Kevin had 15 votes to become speaker. It was what, 10 months ago? Yeah. Well, in that period of time, pretty soon, we'll have Hakeem Jeffries and we'll be voting for him very proudly for what he's doing for the people, honoring the oath of office to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. They are for the people and not, uh, this, a person, this other person that they're nominating, Jordan, doesn't have any legislation, not a legislator, Nothing. never passed a legislature. His big bill is to, criminalize a a woman's right to choose with no exceptions, with no exceptions, the harshest possible position, Uh, again, not accepting the results of the election, but voting, again, you just see these people voting for him when he voted against disaster assistance, when fires came to their area, when storms and hurricanes and and, um, just, well, that's why you see some people voting against him from New York. But there are many others who are voting against the interest of their constituents because, you know why, the instigator of the insurrection, Donald Trump, has asked them to. Has told them to. Let me play what uh, another former
1: speaker, John Boehner, uh, had to say about Jim Jordan. Um, Here he is.
2: You call some of these members political terrorists. Oh, yeah. Jim Jordan especially. My colleague from Ohio.
5: And
2: I, big city I just never and saw a
0: guy who spent more time department. tearing things apart uh, and never building anything,
2: never putting anything together.
1: Kevin McCarthy, uh, with the exact same majority uh, that you had and you were able to be very effective as Speaker with that majority, he couldn't do anything. He couldn't accomplish a thing other than get himself ousted when he was Speaker. What would the House of Representatives look like? With somebody who John Boehner has called a political terrorist in charge, what would happen? Are we going to have a government shutdown?
7: Like, what happens? Well, let me just say, first of all, I had a majority of two, three. uh, There were five. Yeah. And then there were four. Then there were three. And then there were two. Yeah. So it was uh, a a very uh, even slimmer majority than what they have. But the uh, the let's let's just take it to the public. President Clinton, uh, President Lincoln said public sentiment is everything with it. You can accomplish almost anything without it. Practically nothing. Yeah. The public has to understand what is at stake. Our democracy is at stake. What have the Republicans accomplished at all, even when they had a president in the White House from time to time? An enormous tax cut for the super rich and corporations. Eighty three percent of the benefits went to the top one percent. And it added $2 trillion to the national debt. It did. They give that kind of break to the top 1% while they take 30% of food from the mouths of babies. They take 80% from the Title I how, uh, education for children in poor, uh, economic-deprived uh, uh, de- areas. Uh, they take—well, the list goes on and yeah. on. And you know what? Just about every one of them voted every way that way. Yeah. Now some of them have said this is a bridge too far right. for our democracy, and uh, we respect differences of opinion. Sure. That's our democracy. We w- welcome the fray, the conversation, the debate. That it, it, it's not a question of I don't like what you belief. So therefore, uh, you're not right. No, that's your right. You represent your district and that's it. But if you're not honoring the oath of office, if you don't respect our democracy, that That is a a line that cannot be crossed.
1: Uh, Well said. I I want to give you an opportunity, since I I have you here, I'm lucky enough to have you here to let you comment on what is happening in Israel. The president is on his way there. He will now not be meeting with uh, the leaders of Jordan
7: and Egypt, et cetera, because of that hospital bombing. Your thoughts on what's happening? Well, the the president of the United States has been excellent. I mean, just just think, well, I'm very proud of his domestic agenda, but globally— He brought NATO together. In fact, NATO is stronger, despite what Putin thought would happen. He brought people together, listening, countries together, not condescending. America wants this. Let's work together on how we can fight for democracy in Ukraine and help the Ukrainians. And God bless them Mm -hmm. for their courage. And with Israel, I love when somebody said the other day, nobody wrote that speech for him. Israel is our friend in the region, uh, shared values, a national security interest of us, ours in the back. And so uh, he has given his full support, as do I, uh, to Israel in this. What Hamas did was outside the circle of civilized human behavior. What they did was barbaric. But that was barbaric. And people said, well, they did it because of this. No. They did it. Mm-hmm. It was barbaric. Now, uh, I have confidence in the people of Israel. I always tell the story of um, when I was there, a speaker, mm-hmm. I went to visit a hospital there, right. and they told me they had just treated mm-hmm. a Palestinian mm-hmm. a, a, who had d- done violence right. there. Right, And they said we treated the mm-hmm. Jewish person and the Palestinian the same. Mm-hmm. We didn't treat the Palestinian— mm-hmm. Because he was Jewish, we treated him well because we're Jewish. And I believe that overwhelmingly the people of Israel don't want to see Mm -hmm. children and women and families... Disrupted, but war is war, and mm-hmm. the Hamas must pay a price for this. I'll just tell you, my oh, and we, I'm oh a, we have to go. I, oh, I, I, what I, I mean, I'll do, do have I'll have to let you God talk to me often because we are on a time. crunch. I'd rather talk about Israel than, jo- <laughs> than Jordan. <laughs> than not Jim Jordan, the, country, <laughs> uh, not the uh, person. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> well, anyway, let's uh, speak- pray for uh, that. That. Uh, uh, life will be valued as precious yeah, indeed. all over. Indeed.
1: Well said. Speaker
7: Emerita Nancy Pelosi. Thank, thank you. you. As always, we're back. <laughs> oh, I felt good.
3: There's the famous saying of the mother of Emmett Teal when she said, let the world see what they have done to my boy. Since the mother of Wadir is not here, we say on her behalf, let the world see What they have done to her boy. And I want you to take a moment to appreciate that every single Palestinian child
1: looks like Wadir. And when we mourn Wadir, we are mourning all of those children. That was a powerful moment outside the funeral of Wadia al-Fayyume, the six-year-old Palestinian boy stabbed 26 times, murdered as a direct result of the Israel-Hamas war. Tensions are high throughout the country, with both Muslim and Jewish Americans facing increased threats. And to many Americans, the conflict in the Middle East is deeply personal. But despite the fraught environment, interfaith communities have come together, including a group of Chicago rabbis who attended Wadia's funeral yesterday at the Mosque Foundation in Bridgeview, Illinois. Rabbi Ari Hart posted a photo with the mosque's imam, writing, quote, I can't say that it was simple to be there. These are not simple times. But the murder of a six-year-old because of his faith and his identity is not complicated. It is a heinous crime. And that's why we went today. Rabbi Hart joins me now. And Rabbi Hart, thank you so much for being here. Can you walk us through your decision to attend um, Wadia's funeral?
3: Sure. Um, Thanks for having me.
1: Of course.
3: Like you said, so many of us are in so much pain right now. There's such deep pain. Um, you know, in my community, everything that's unfolding a couple thousand miles away is unfolding to our families in our hearts. Uh, we're consumed by it. Um, there's a member of our community who's being held hostage in Gaza right now. His name is Hirsch Poland. We pray for his safety. Everybody knows someone who was murdered, wounded, hiding in shelters, etc. So it's a moment of a lot of pain, like you said. And then we heard about this horrific attack and it's a nightmare. You know, I have children, five and 10, two boys with Dia's age. And to imagine one of my children being murdered for who he is, for what he believes, for his nationality, it's unthinkable and it's wrong. And people of conscience need to stand up against the terror attacks targeting children, wherever they are, whoever they are. And we felt like we needed to, to go and lend our support. Um, You know, and I'm very grateful to the leadership at the mosque because we reached out and said, look, you know, we're different. You know, we are Orthodox Jews. Um, We believe in Israel's right to exist. Um, We feel horrible about what happened. And would it be okay if we came? If it wouldn't, we're not going to come. We don't want to. You know, the last thing we'd want is to cause more suffering. And the leadership said, yes, please come. And so we went and it was tremendously powerful and challenging and difficult and the right thing to do.
1: Um, You know, it it, it has been a very difficult uh, couple of weeks, or it's hard to even sort of make time work uh, anymore of how long it's even been. Uh, But we know that even over the course of this past year, um, both Jewish Americans and Muslims um, have been at the top of the list in terms of hate crimes. Um, There have been tremendous amounts of hate crimes against both of these two groups. You know, religion is supposed to be something that brings about peace, Um, And these are two Abrahamic religions. These are cousin religions along with Christianity. And I wonder you as a rabbi, how you process the fact that there is sort of this constant hate around religion rather than what they're supposed to be, which is love.
3: You know, for 99.9% of Jews and for 99.9% of Muslims and 99.9% of Christians, there is love. And I've seen that and I felt that in the work that I do. And I'm blessed to have relationships and friendships with partners of across all racial and ethnic lines. You know, before this event, part of my rabbit has been reaching out and building bridges across diverse communities here in Chicago um, and across the country and the world. And, you know, people are good. People are good. It's hard to remember that sometimes, but humanity is good. And there are things, there is evil there is also evil. And what happened to Wadiya was evil. And it's very hard sometimes to uh, hold both of those truths that people are good and there's evil. Uh, but I think especially in these moments, we have to remind ourselves of the goodness and reach out and find the goodness and build up the goodness. Um, and that's, I think, all of our jobs in these dark times. That's what we all have to be doing right now.
1: Um, and, you know, and I'll, the final question, um, we know that Wadia's mom is hospitalized. She was also a victim of that heinous stabbing. Um, did you have any opportunity to speak with his dad who has spoken out, um, you know, about what he hopes that his son's memory can do to make things better? You know, uh,
3: his dad spoke and I was right there, right next to him, and I heard his words. Uh, he spoke in Arabic. I didn't understand most of them, but I th- I don't want to quote. I don't want to quote because my Arabic is very bad. Um, But I heard him say words like uh, I heard him say Jew and Muslim and Christian. And I I think what he was saying was that we need to figure out a way to come together. Um, I think that's what he was saying. I can't. You know, be 100% sure. But that's what I heard in his words. I also heard his pain. And part of the reason we went was to just witness, you know, as rabbis, to witness this horrific suffering and to cry alongside uh, those who were suffering. Um, and as I said, there's so much brokenness. There's so much pain right now. Whatever positive things we can do, and I implore everybody, whatever little bit of light you can add, now is the time. Add the light.
1: Uh, I think that, uh, we are of different faiths, but you can get an amen for that. Uh, Rabbi Ari Hart, thank you so much for being here and we'll be right back. Thank you. Thank you. And that's tonight's readout. Be sure to join me tomorrow night. My friend and colleague, Rachel Maddow joins me right here on set to discuss her new book, prequel, an American fight against fascism. You do not want to miss it.